Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. DC Comics and Chocolate Some things will always be great. DC Comics and Chocolate Even though I'm 28. Who to be a referee? Get him off, get him off. What a whistle and a little dried up pee. Well, hello again, and welcome to episode 154 of There's Still Time, the AFTN podcast. I'm Michael McCall. And I'm Steve Pander. And we're trying to be upbeat because anyone that watched Whitecaps play at DC on Saturday, it was hard to be upbeat after that. But we're going to try and be focused and upbeat until we start talking about the game. Which is right now. (laughs) And we're going to do things a little bit different in this episode of the podcast. It's going to be basically split into two parts. The first part, we're going to talk about Whitecaps WFC 2. And then the second half of the podcast, going to play quite a lengthy conference call that a number of reporters had with Peter Walton from Pro. I just feel it's important to get that out there so that fans can hear it. You'll have read some of the comments through a number of different articles that journalists have written. I just feel it's important for, for fans and also for players just to kind of hear what pros take is on the start to the season, all the red cars, the disciplinary action taken, stuff like that. So we're going to have that in the second half of the show. But let's not put it off any longer. Let's talk not too much, I don't think, because it's quite depressing if we do. Whitecaps went to DC, obliterated by a, a DC United team that were winless going into the game, were struggling... We talked about it in the podcast last week. This was a game that the Whitecaps could very easily have gone and won. Instead, they suffered one of their worst defeats in the MLS era, 4-0 thrashing, and they put in one of the worst performances I think we've seen under Carl Robinson's tenure. Yeah, and it was definitely worse than that performance in 2011 when they visited there. I think they lost 3-0, and I think it was Jay Nolley's last appearance as a Whitecap. Um, he had a horrible game opposite to this one where everybody else had a horrible game and the goalkeeper was the only shining light in there. Um, it's it's really a big thing when your goalkeeper, you allow four goals and your goalkeeper gets named man of the match. That's a that's a, a very telling tale of how, how that game went. Oh, and for sure, it's like if Eisted had not made a, a couple of huge saves in the first half in particular, I mean, that could have been six, seven, eight now. And it was embarrassing enough at four. I mean, the, the Whitecaps' attitude is... Yeah, they know it was a bad game, dust themselves down. They don't they don't get hung up on losses. No, that's the way you have to be. If you do get hung up on that loss, then you're not gonna there's no point in even playing the next game. Um you might as well get a whole different starting eleven, which I'm sure some people online are suggesting to do. But I think I think that you have to dust it off, take it as what it is, and then move on to the next one. Which obviously makes me sound like I'm part of the coaching staff, but no, that's the that's just the way it is. You have to do that. And it would be remiss of us if we didn't mention that Part of the reason for the defeat was that the Whitecaps were missing a, a number of key starters. Otavio Rivero, Pedro Morales, Christian Balanes, they were all injured. Nicolas Mesquita as well was injured and, and, and couldn't play in the number 10 role. 
you had Matthias Laba that was suspended. There's been a lot of talk that the Whitecaps depth this year is much better. And it is much better. But I think we, we saw it last year as well. The depth is good. But if you make too many changes at once, the, the team just it can't falls, function. Yeah, it falls apart. And then... And, and the also other problem is is when you have certain injuries in one position or when you have a lot of players absent from that one position, you're forced to play like a player that doesn't really play. Like, for example, uh, one of the guys that really struggled in the, and was substituted at the halftime was Marco Bustos, who is a number 10, essentially. Doesn't play wing uh, very often, if at all. I, I, I honestly don't remember the last time he played. Maybe it was a game in, when he came on as a sub or something like that. Maybe he played wing there. But I think that was probably took him out of the game. Wingers normally get, to, uh, or you have to be very cognizant of keeping them in the game. And when you have a young player who never played out there, it, 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 it's reasonable to understand that maybe he got lost in the game. Yeah, I mean, Bustos was taken off at half time. Carl Robinson said at training t- today, Tuesday, that it, it wasn't a, a slight on his performance. It's just he had to, to freshen things up be- because they were down. It was a four four two formation that he went with. It was, it was kind of all over the pitch so it was really hard to tell who was playing meant to be playing where really mm-hmm. and there was a couple of breaks that the White Cats were going forward and you had Kuro and Perez up there and Teixeira and then Jacobson was up there and you're looking around and then Bustos wasn't on the, the break so you're wondering where was he and it's like it, it was just a, it just was a mess because the other thing is with wingers too is like he probably was being told you know prior to the game because the new position for him like we said oh you ha- make sure you take responsibility defensively and this and that and 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 I think that probably got in his head maybe and maybe he wasn't able to get up in the attack and then uh, another thing is is this probably affected another player who had a, a not a I don't say a bad game he's he probably been one of the better defenders but Jordan Harvey because he's got a young guy playing in front of him in the first half and he's got a be aware of him, and then he's playing next to Parker. So I think that probably had a lot to do with his off game. I'm not trying to make excuses for them, but that's probably another thing that happened there. Yeah, but we'll come out of the defence shortly. Up front, we got to see the striking partnership that a lot of us have been excited to see as to what they could produce. Blas Perez, Masata Kudo, both of them pretty poor. I have to say as well, there was a point in the second half, Masata Kudo just appeared on the edge of the box in a break and I was like oh yeah Kudo's playing because I'd completely forgotten by that point Kudo just had a a really bad game Perez didn't really have much of a good game either there just seemed to be no no spark no creative spark Kikuta Mane had a a couple of runs in the second half they brought Eric Hurtado on he hit the post then whiffed a, a shot right in front of an empty net that he should have put away Hurtado's not a guy that you want to bring on when you're two goals down and you're trying to chase a game. It was clear that the missing players was a big part in that, but just the, the whole attack. and it's... There, was, there was no creativity in the lineup. Like you said, there was no Morales, there was no Bolognas. Those two guys are probably your more creative guys. And then on top of that, uh, another guy who really struggled, I thought, was Tichera. I was like, where, like, what's going on with him? He's not buzzing in around the net. Maybe he thought maybe because there's two strikers in the box, he didn't need to go in there. But why not a bunch more people in there? And he wasn't really delivering the ball either. It just felt that the team didn't really know what they were meant to be doing out there. And the good news going ahead to the upcoming game against RSL 
is at training today on Tuesday. Bolanias, Mosquita and Morales were all doing laps, not playing in the scrimmage. So the, the chances of, well, Pedro's definitely going to be out, but the chances of Bolanias and Mosquito being fit for this weekend look slim. Robo's not ruling it out, so y- you never know. The Octavio Rivero, though, was on the pitch running around, so I think he's going to be, be back in the team. But it, it does seem to be a case, no matter who's playing up front, no matter what combination, no matter what formation, they just can't unlock the goals. They just can't put the ball in the back of the net. And then in, I think in the in the in the presser we they had with Rob, and you can probably see this on the Whitecaps website. You asked the question about uh, at this point, is there anything to change, or do you just keep plugging along? You know, he 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 obviously answered it. I think he caught the formation quest part of the question, yeah. and he just went off on that, so he didn't really answer it properly. Up, so. Yeah. But what 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 do you what do you think? Is it? I think it's just a matter of plugging on at this point. Is like if you keep changing things over and over again, I think the players. You know, we've always said the players aren't the brightest people in the world. I'm not saying our Whitecaps, but other players. Do you really want to be, keep making changes and then confuse them even more? I mean, it's tough because they've tried so many different formations. I I would like to see Rivero and Perez kind of persistent for a few games just to see what we can get out of them together as a working unit. Robus feels that it's just going to take. A bit of luck to change it. A ball off a bum, ball off the side of a head, yeah. just a scrambled goal. And he feels that once the goals are coming, like what you said last week, Steve, once the goals start to come, then they're, they're just the floodgates might open. I'm just not so confident well, about that. I'm not confident this week, especially against RSL. Well, one thing, I'm confident against RSL because RSL has, while they are undefeated, they do give up a lot of goals uh, on average. Like, uh, uh the, uh, the first game of the season when they were up 2 nothing and they gave up two goals in injury time to uh, Orlando. That was a big one. Uh, they gave up two goals to Portland and a couple other games like that. So they they are susceptible to giving up goals, but when you're playing in RSL in that in the altitude and sometimes the humidity there, it's going to be tough there. I like looking ahead to the game then at the weekend. As you say, it's going to be a tough one. RSL, unbeaten at the moment, second in the table, looking good, looking strong, a lot stronger than I thought they were going to be this year, and I think a lot of folk didn't expect them to to do so well. Still early days, of course. Utah is always a a tough place to to go and play. They've been doing better in recent years down there. I think if they can even get a point from this game, they're going to be happy with that. I mean, formation-wise... It's hard to know because we don't really know who's going to be fit. But, I mean, what what would you like to see ideally? We know Morales is going to be out. It looks like Bolanius is also going to be out. Not 100% sure Mosquito's going to, to make it as well. But, I mean, what do you think that they're going to do? Is this a game that Robo might write off and, and give a few guys chances? Like, he might rest Jordan Harvey. We, we talked about he didn't have his best game. Maybe he'll rest him, yeah. give Sam Adekugbe his chance. Fraser Aird struggled at times. Maybe Jordan Smith will come in for this one. Lab is back at least. Lab is back. Um, I think. I think what you do personally, what I would do is have Laba play with Tiber. Tiber get Tiber back in the game. See if what he can sh- show you. Uh, I know he struggled. Obviously, we talked about that too. Struggled mightily in that in that game. But I think you put them together because they played together before. Have Jacobson ready to come off the bench if they need him. And then at the, on the back end, I agree with you. I'd probably maybe put Sam in at this point and then have Jordan ready to play at home. And But I think I think you still go with Fraser. Um, I, I would like to see, keep plugging him in and see what he can show you uh, uh, after a tough game again. I, I don't like young players. I don't like taking them out after a difficult game unless they're like like down the pecking order like Bustos he's obviously not high up on the roster right now so th- that's not a big deal but Fraser's your starter keep him as your starter even if he had a difficult game 
Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I would probably go with giving Sam a little run out in this one, just give Harvey a little bit of a rest. I think he's going to go with 4-4-2 again. I disagree with you. I wouldn't keep Tybert. I know Tybert and Laba played last season. But for me, Laba's going to play the DM role. And I think Jacobson perfectly fits playing a DM-CM role in a 4-4-2, just because he has... He has an attacking quality that Tybert just seems to have uh, lost altogether. Yeah, there was we were talking about before we started recording. There was that one year with Camilo that where he was providing a, quite a bit of attack. He scored a goal against LA. Um, Couple. Yeah, so lots assists galore. Yeah, assists galore. So I don't know what it is. Maybe they're just trying to pigeonhole him into a DM role, and he feels like he shouldn't go forward because he might open up the attack. I'm not sure why he doesn't go forward. But if you're like we were saying four four two, would do you think a diamond would be better? That way you have. Somebody up there supporting the strikers directly instead of... Because Laba by himself at the back, I think he's more than capable, unless he flings himself at somebody at, at, a, at a ball or whatever and gets somebody... I think he's more than capable of holding it on. The, the problem is who would play at the top of the diamond, really? Jacobson, maybe. Well, yeah, I guess you could have Teixeira. Huh. I, I think if Mosquita is fit, he's going to go with his trusty four-two-three-one with Mosquita in the number 10 role. I mean, you could risk to, to share doing the number 10 role, but I, I just don't think that would work. I think the players aren't going to be good to start. I think we'll see 4-4-2. I think we'll see Teixeira as one of the wingers, and I think he'll just go with Mane as well. The, the options are looking a little bit grim, I have to say, for this one. What about Keon's froze? I thought he came on for the bench pretty solidly. I know he's coming off an injury still, so um, but maybe throw him in there. He's he's had a uh, history of playing in altitude. Maybe he can do something there as well. He might be an option to play alongside Laba. Let, let's talk about the defence. They were cut open for three of the four goals on Saturday. The second goal, Birnbaum out-jumped Tim Parker at a corner, crashed his header off the bar... Fell beautifully right in front for Espindola. He couldn't miss from there and buried it high into the net. That was the only one of the four goals that... I mean, folk did criticise Parker. They thought he should have out-jumped Birnbaum, but it's like, I, I don't put a lot of blame in that. The other three goals, along with some of the saves that Ousted had to make, the defence was cut wide open, a lot of it down Fraser Aird's side, but also in the middle of the park. Parker and Waston were torn apart by, by the speed of the, the, the DC players. And I know the last two goals, they were trying to push to get something so they left themselves short at the back. Yeah. But they were getting cut open. There was a lot of balls. What I noticed in the first half in particular, DC were attacking up Aird's flank, hitting the byline, cutting it back into the penalty spot. And there's always a player there that was unmarked. Yeah. And if it wasn't for Ousted making a couple of saves, there'd have been a few more. But it's like a couple of the goals came through that middle where Boston and, and Parker were kind of all at sea. Yeah, it was clearly that they they must have scouted that Montreal game by doing that tactic. They were they were they were because that uh, the way you described it is clearly that's the way Montreal attacked Frazier and that's the way they attacked him. And we've given kudos, not not Masato, but we've given kudos to to Aird for getting better and better every game. But it is clear that teams still see that as the the weak side to to attack on the on the Whitecaps' defence. But I think, I mean, as much as I like Tim Parker and as much as I like Kendall Waston and I like that pairing, is is there concerns that it's not the first time this year that we've seen the middle of the park kind of middle of the defence torn open? Should he look? maybe bringing Ka back beside Waston because the pair of them last year were 
pretty formidable together. While everybody's talking about, oh, they've only given up a certain goals and they had two clean sheets in a row, one of those was the one where Ka was leading the back line, essentially. So maybe it is time to go back to them. I, I don't know if you want to do that against RSL, where Ka is maybe not 100% fit, and that could, you know, make him... Um, not be the ideal person. Maybe they stick with Parker Watson one more time, and and maybe it was. Um, that's one one question for you. We're talking about the center backs in the middle of the pitch. How much did that have to do with Jacobson and Tybert's partnership in front of them, and and, and whether they protected him or not uh, uh, fully, and the fact that those two played for the first time ever together, and Ted Tybert's first game of the season. Yeah, I mean it could be that, and uh, Lapa being out was obviously a big big thing in the game. So, I mean, it might be better with, with Laba back there. I just think it's going to be tough against a really dangerous RSL side. And as I mentioned, one of the things the Whitecaps are struggling with this year is that they cut back from the byline and also dealing with fast players. And you've got Plata that's on fire this season for, yeah. for RSL. It's a bit of a worry. How, how do you see the, the, the game playing out? I just, I'm not hopeful for this at all. No, it's going to be tough to, for them to get a, uh, Ideally, you want to just get a result. You want to get a draw. Try to get one draw out of the two games and then try to regroup for the home games at that point. I, I've written this one off. I, I'm going to go... I think it's going to be another defensive horror show. Mm-hmm. I still don't see that the attack's going to click. I mean, even if you play Perez and Rivero up front, it's like where the creativity is going to be with all these guys out. I'm going to go for a 3-0 RSL one. I'll go, I'll go 1-0 loss. So we're all doom and gloom, but <laughs> which means they might win. Yeah, but it's usually if I find pessimistic, they win. So watch for the stunning fight back from the the Caps this week. Let's let's raise the the doom and gloom a little bit. Let's talk about the other White Caps teams. Residency, a fantastic weekend of results. They they drew with Seattle at under 18s yeah. and they beat Seattle at under 16. The 18s now unbeaten in 23 matches. And and from the looks of it, and uh, they're they're a very young team because a lot of their players, like you you, if you think of the uh, clubs missing players. They're missing quite a few players that would normally play on them. They, you know, you got Alfonso Davies, Thomas Gardner, Caden Chung that are playing with the WFC two, and and they're they got a lot of young players on that U eighteen team. So it's very impressive the way their results are, and obviously the sixteens. They're, the Whitecaps seem to always have a strong 16s. They always seem to have something going on there, and they're always a strong lineup going on. And a lot's been made about Alfonso Davies, and he's moved up to WFC too. But Alan Camacho is on yeah. fire for yeah. the 16s. It's a good thing they haven't missed him at all. So, and we mentioned WFC two there, unbeaten start to the season still. Three games, in fact, unbeaten all year because they they were unbeaten in six games in pre-season. Yeah. But they, they've started the USL season with two wins and. Uh, a really gutsy draw against Sacramento Republic, who are one of the favourites, I think, to, to win the USL Championship this year. And Don Garber going there on Thursday to discuss the MLS possibilities. And watch for a piece on USLsoccer.com. I spoke to Republic head coach Paul Buckle after the game, so there's going to be a, a piece on that. And Buckle described his Republic team as being a scalp for a, a number of teams and. Yeah, it's maybe a bit big-headed, but it is also true they are one of the big teams in the league. And Alan Koch has used them as a measuring stick, and he was delighted that his young side, I mean, a side with three teenagers starting, one of them was Debbie Flores, but I mean, still three teenagers, that they they battled to nil-nil draw. They were a little bit under the caution in the second half, but they had a goal disallowed that, that should have stood. And I think one of the most pleasing aspects from WFC2 this year is how they've shored up the defence. They've had... Two clean sheets now, 
and just conceded one goal in, in all three games. Sacramento actually haven't given up a goal all season, so you can't even knock the strikers for not getting a goal on Sunday. But the defence has really shored up well, and one of the key players behind that is the 21-year-old Dutchman that they brought in, Sem De Witt. He's played every minute of every game so far. He's been outstanding. He looks a great talent and a great prospect for the MLS team. And some of you might have read my interview with Sam on AFTN last week. We're going to play it for you now because it's, it's good to hear from him. I think he's going to be a good prospect. It's a name you need to know and a name to watch out for. So let's hear now from WFC 2's Dutch centre-back, Sam De Witt. Sam, you've been here a couple of weeks now, well, I guess two months now. How have you found the whole environment in Vancouver, both playing-wise and also just the, the city being in a new city? It's it's great, actually, now, with the sun. <laughs> no, it's it's <laughs> yeah. great. It's a great city. It's um, I feel it feels like home now, you know? Like, first first few weeks was like, get used to everything. Now, with the team, we do well, and... Uh, we went two in a row and the team is good. I think we're all good with each other. We train well every day, we try to get better every day. So yeah, this is like uh it's it's it, yeah, it's it's good, I feel like it feels good here, yeah. Yeah. Coming over here from Europe, it's yeah. it's strange for a young guy like yourself to come over because usually it's guys when they're older and a lot of the young guys here want to go and play in Europe, yeah. like Holland, Germany, stuff like that. What was behind the move here? What, why did think, you want to come? I think I was ready for an adventure. I was like, I played three years in Holland. wasn't wasn't a big yeah, wasn't a big success. So I think I was ready for an adventure and just come on my path. And I did the trial in November and it goes well club told me I can stay here so I was like yeah I, f I thought about it like good chat with my parents with my brother everything and I think it was was a good move to, to come here like on this age I'm just turned 21 it's a, it's a huge experience for me like good adventure like I told you far from home uh, I deal with it and I do well so far so yeah I think it's it's so far it's good yeah one of the things I read about you I don't know if it was true or not was that the you were kind of scouted with because they'd seen your YouTube video. Mm. Is that is that true or? It is like um, an agent in in America. He saw my video like on YouTube. He saw my video and he contacted my brother, and he has some contact with with the coach. And uh, yes, they saw my video and they were there was like, I think that was enough for a trial. And in the trial, you have to improve yourself. So yeah, that was that was kind of thing like that was the thing with uh, with uh, with YouTube. Yeah, I was yeah. And you've played two games now in, yeah. in the league. How have you found the level compared to what you've been used to over in Holland? It's good. It's good. I was a bit surprised. Like in the preseason, with all respect, we didn't we played like the universities. Yeah. So when you play like the first game against Orange County, after you get used to it, the first ten minutes, it's a different level. They're big and they're strong and athletic and yeah. It was it was. I think it's a good level. Like. Especially for young guys like you, WFC two, you can you can do yeah. If you do well, you can make the step or not, you know. Or it's I think it's a good 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 start for a young player for young players or um, like now some players from the first team came down. They do a yeah. great job with us, and you see they they like they they're motivated. They want to play. Like you see they they're good with us. They train well, and 
that's like I think that's important. Like if everyone is, does well, like does well, like the level is getting higher and higher, and the league is. It's I think it's yeah I think it's a good level yeah yeah. And the the way that this team is, you're going to be playing beside different people sometimes. Every week's going to be like a different yeah. lineup. Yeah. So you you were beside Jackson for the first game yeah. and then Cole for the second. Yeah. How how difficult is it to kind of adjust and to get into know a partner in a uh, short time? I think it's part of your job. I mean, like you train with the guys all the time, so it doesn't really matter if you play. Like next week, I play with Jackson. Next the next week, Jackson maybe plays with Cole, or I play with Cole, or uh, I play with I don't know who who else. But I think it's. You get used to it, like if they come, if it's not that bad. Like Cole, he trains like a lot with us. Yeah. Um, um, in the preseason, I played some games with him, and I played some games with Jackson, and yeah, I think it's not a big deal. You get get used to it like pretty soon. When the game starts, it's all like the same. Yeah. And obviously, the way that this club is set up, there's a clear path to MLS. If you do well here, yeah. you've got a good chance. But it's different than Europe, whereas. You can't just do well in the reserves and then all of a sudden they'll call you up because you have to have your MLS contract. Yeah. But knowing that the club has that path and that there's an MLS club, was that a, a key part of your decision to, to come here? Yeah, like, end of the day, my my dream is to play in the MLS. You you, you start with the with, in the USL and you pr- try to make the step to the MLS. That's, like, what every young player wants to do. Yeah, well, if you do well, maybe they give you... If you like. Yeah. It's like it's everywhere, like in Europe, and it's in here. Like if you do well, you you get your chance. I get, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, have to, you have to. Only thing you have to do is like train every day as hard as possible. Like try to get better every day, play well every game. So end of the day, that you can look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I did everything to to yeah to do what I can to make the MOS. And if it's if it's not work out, yeah, I did everything I could. You know. Growing up in the Dutch system. Yeah. Because everyone knows about. The Dutch system is yeah. really good. What, what was it like coming through as a youth player? Like, obviously you don't know what it's like here, but like, what what kind of skills do you feel that you really learned coming through the youth system in Holland? Um, well, in Holland you learn like you're like everyone in Holland is good on the ball, and um, I think that's a good that's a huge win for me here. Like I'm good on the ball and I can defend well. And um, if you really if you're good, good on headers the too, because I watched you in training last week and yeah. you're burying lots yeah. of headers. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. And, <laughs> I can, yeah, I win a lot of headers. You know, it's yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you learn, learn like how to how to do how to deal with the ball. And as a centre back, I'm good with the ball. I think that's a that's a great win for like that's a good um, that's a strong point for me. And um, yeah, because if you want to play like like how the White Caps want to play is like they want to try to play to the lines like to not the long ball. So yeah. I think that's a good that's a good thing for me. Like I can play from the back and. Started some good, 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 good plays, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for speaking to me yeah, and good luck you. with everything. Yeah. So, Sim DeWitt, there, uh, definitely a, a guy to watch uh, as a C. Any final comments on WFC two from you, Steve? No, I th- I, I think the the, uh, the thing is they they they're still missing one of their top players from last year, uh, Blasco. Um, he's injured. He's still, and another top player from them, uh, McKendry, um, is still coming back from injury too. 
So I think you add those two guys in there. I, th- I think this could be a very exciting t- year for them. Uh, at this point, um, especially with the strikers they have up top, I see them making the playoffs for sure. And I think we'll see playoff uh, football in WFC too. I do as well. And Alan's telling everyone not to get carried away. And it is all about development. But you develop by winning. And by winning, it just, yeah, I mean, it just builds great players. And I'm really, really confident that this team can, can go far and go deep this year. And we'll get a good test against OKC Energy on Sunday night. If you're free, get up to Thunderbird Stadium, 7 o'clock kickoff. And there's going to be a kind of fire display afterwards. So get out for that. Fire or fireworks? Let's hope it's the good kind of fireworks on the pitch. So that's our our Whitecaps talk for this episode. So as I said at the start of the show, going to play a, quite a, a lengthy bit from Peter Walton now. So if you're not interested in this, you can just switch off. But I think well, you should be. 25 minutes or so, right? Yep, 25 minutes. It's from a conference call that Peter Walton did with a, a number of top journalists last week. I wasn't on the call. I couldn't make it. But I managed to get hold of some of the audio and I've edited out a lot of the pleasantries and just who the folk were asking the questions and cut it down from about 55 minutes down to this 25 just to kind of really deal with the salient points. But I I do feel that it's something that the fans should hear exactly Pro's version of what's going on with officiating this year. So no more waffle for me. Let's get straight to it. Let's hear now from Pro's Peter Walton. To be a referee, get him off, get him off. What a whistle and a little dried up bee. It's no protection for all the things they throw. Toilet rolls and puddles every time I blow. I thought that it'd be appropriate at this stage of the season just to update everybody as to where Pro is and what's happening for 2016. And it would seem uh, that referees are flavour of the month and that's something I don't want them to be because the game's about the players and not the referees. So I just thought I'd, uh, I'd um, share with you some of the points that we, we, we're going through. Indeed, you've seen this year um, an insight into the serious style play um, and the actions that our referees are taking on that. And I'll touch on that a, a little bit about later in, in my discussion. In terms of pro itself, and a quick, quick uh, brief overview of pro, really, um, we have made um, progress in our um, in our company in terms of the referees are getting better each year, and I have the data to provide and, and, and uh, furnish with that. So it's not just a uh, perception; there's a factual element to this as well. When Pro started uh, some 2013, we had two full-time referees, and some of you may remember that. Um, two full-time referees servicing the Mass League soccer accompanied by some 37 or so independent contractors. And what we found when I got here was that um, there were far too many referees to furnish the, the few games that we had at the time, and each referee was, was getting around some 10 games per, per person. That was um, reduced in terms of the, the numbers of officials, but in fact what we did was we created a pool of full-time referees uh, supplemented by part-time referees. So now we have 13 full-time referees and 10 uh, part-time referees and each referee attracts on average obviously around about 15 games a season although uh, the best performers uh, get many more games than than the people who are um, finding life difficult or in fact a part of that development side of things. In terms of their training and education as well again when we started 
uh, would you believe the uh, the referees got together as a collective body twice a season, and you can imagine one of our coaches getting his team together twice a season. It's just a non-starter, and that was a real um, a vacuum to be filled. And now uh, we get our guys together some 18, 19 times a season, every two weeks, and um, collectively to talk and digest the, the game uh, and, and the matches and, and the players that we've seen. In terms of the um, analysis uh, of their performances, we have a thorough analysis of their performances done by uh, technology, uh, done by um, independent assessors, and together um, we have some feedback as well from our key stakeholders, from the NASL, from the USL, and indeed from Major League Soccer, about some, how they consider performances. And they go all into the... Um, uh, it always the pot to, uh, to ascertain how our referees are performing match by match. In terms of that technology that we use as well, um, we are using uh, GPS tracking now for our referees, and that way we can see uh, the distance they're running, the distance they're, they're from fouls, and whether or not they're in the right positions, etc. And this um, goes hand in hand with their fitness program and their, their data program as we see it. In terms of them, um, uh, how we then collect our data. We use a company called Sipsons. Some of you may know Sipsons. Sipsons actually work for the, uh, the NFL and the English Premier League uh, collecting similar data to what they collect from our, our guys. And that data really goes through their decision-making on an event, per event uh, basis. In other words, if they got every foul correct, if they got every offside correct, if they got every throwing correct, the goal kick, corner kick, you name it, we collect the data on it to ensure that we can track themes and we can track individuals who perhaps need some development in, in various places. Or indeed, we can track best practice as well, which is also um, part of our analysis. And in terms of the, the fitness of our referees, again, some of you may well know, we uh, employ a uh, full-time sports scientist and his role really is to get our guys fit for purpose. Yes, they are fit, and yes, as many people fit, but are they fit for purpose? And we're finding now that uh, we need to uh, fine-tune our, our, our guys in terms of their dynamic running, their dynamic sprinting, their positional plays, etc. And that's born through, obviously, GPS tracking, but also through our sports scientist and his programme. In terms of um, uh, the, the, the consistency nature, the mere fact that we hold some 19 camps per season really brings our group together collectively. And when they're together collectively, we discuss plays, we digest and dissect plays. And so we're now beginning to see a lot more consistency between individuals. What you won't see, of course, is that 100% consistency because basically they're human beings and it's a subjective sport. But hopefully what we'll be seeing is a more consistent message throughout one game by one referee so people are aware of what's happening. And when it comes to the big calls, they should be treated the same in terms of the, uh, the application of any um, disciplinary measures or, or, or of that nature. And going into um, uh, 2016, we are seeing, uh, as you well know, an increase in our, in our red card situation through serious foul play. And this is nothing new. This has been uh, really on the agenda since 2012, ever since those four days of 2011 when a number of the key players in MLS suffered significant injuries. And it was then that 
it was felt that perhaps we need to act on some of those challenges that will impact the game and will impact our our individuals. So we're really now looking at those challenges, and that's been going on now for some three years. It's only because we've now got the analytical tools, we've got the, um, the tracking devices, and we can see that last year we got 72% of our red card correct, which sounds good, but actually it means we were missing 28%. And when we delve into those 28% that we were missing, it was really down to poor positioning, poor movement on behalf of the, the referees. Uh, some, I think it's some 84% or so, um, were, were missed because of that respect. That gave us the, the um, initiative then and gave us the data to really get home on it. And what we, what we see now is that our referees are applying law, as law is written, and, and uh, looking at these challenges. And, and that's uh, one of the reasons why red cards are increasing, because our referees now are detecting and punishing, as they should do in law, those type of challenges. In fact, with the, the actual uh, uh, red card situation, the council, I'm sure you're all aware uh, of the statistics, is not too far removed from where we were last year. It just means that there are more red cards, straight red cards, rather than red cards as a the consequence of two yellow cards. So we're, we are now punishing the, the offence um, and, and as, it, as it should be. And I think over a period of time, players and coaches will modify their behaviour so that they are in sync with the laws of the game and it is being played as the law is um, described. And, and what we'll see, I think, is a levelling off of disciplinary matters and in fact uh, we'll see a slight change in the way and the style that we see major league soccer being played in. You know, how do you decide what the standard is for a red card? I mean, I know the laws of the game are a basis for that, but do you look at the way games are being called in other leagues around the world to kind of establish that? Now, in terms of um, what we look for, yes, you're quite right. Um, a serious foul play is defined in law. It's defined, but of course, these are very subjective as well. Um, one of the defining parts are that a player lunges at an opponent, and we take that into consideration, of course. But there are other aspects that we take into consideration when we're looking at a serious power play. One is the speed of the challenge. One is the force behind the challenge. A straight leg or two-legged challenge. Four legs um, uh, uh, off the ground where the player is clearly not in control of his body. Uh, and, and where on the body um, there's contact um, of, the, of the opponent. So there's a number of tick boxes there that pro um, uh, advocates as a red card challenge. In terms of looking around the world, yes I do. I watch a lot of soccer around the world and I was most disappointed that um, West Ham won their appeal on the send-off from last Saturday. That, for me, uh, I'm sure some of you out there have seen that challenge. Uh, West Ham played Crystal Palace and um, Coyote, I think is the guy's name. And was sent off, uh, in my opinion, quite correctly. That, of course, was over over um, uh, uh, it was uh, overturned by the Football Association of England. But that's down to them. As far as I'm concerned, that type of challenge um, in North America is not the type of challenge that um, we want in our game, and will be punished with a red card. In terms of other, other leagues, I will look at my major stakeholders. And I will look at um, the way that Pro wants that game to be fashioned. And I think that um, uh, for protection of players, 
the protection of skillful players. Um, it is the right uh, way to go and be strong and tough on offences that could endanger the safety of home. Uh, Am I right in a saying then that the bar on what a serious uh, foul play is has not been raised, but the referees are just in your view, now just calling the letter of the law correctly, is that fair to say? Neil, that's spot on. Absolutely <laughs> bang on. I couldn't, have, I couldn't have explained it better to me. Nothing has changed in law. Nothing has changed in the way that Pro wants the game to be played and administered. What has changed is our referees are much more consistent in the application of the law than I want them to apply. And then I take it you feel, um, if I'm also getting you correct, you feel that uh, the players, while they may be a little confused now because it's changed, the calling of things have changed slightly from last season, that they will get used to, to this and you have told them that they have to. Is that correct? We as an organisation uh, met with all the clubs, um, the coaching staff and the players pre-season. We do this every year. And as part of that meeting, we show various clips of the games in previous seasons and talk it through, tell the players and the coaches how pro uh, referees or assistants will officiate that game. And it, it really should not be a surprise to people when, when they see players being dismissed for the challenges that we've seen uh, in, the, in the first four weeks of this season. What we've done in the past is not get that, um, uh, that, that consistency between our referees. And I spent a considerable amount of time with the refereeing group uh, pre-season, going through plays, going through uh, various um, uh, examples from previous seasons, talking to them so they understood. And, and, and what you're seeing now is that application being uh, consistently applied. Will the players modify their behaviour? I think they will. Um, will it change the, uh, the course of the game and affect the game? I don't think it will change that much of, of the game. It will certainly make the game, I think, more entertaining because the skill practice is being able to flourish. But I do think that the players will slightly modify their behaviour, not by much, because physical contact in the game of soccer is still within the law. And I still expect challenges to be made and tackles to be made. What I do expect are players just to have in fact their mind that they shouldn't make such challenges because they stand the risk of uh, receiving a red card. Peter, just, just wondering what kind of feedback you got from the uh, players and coaches when you guys had the meetings during preseason. Was there any pushback from them uh, or any concerns uh, uh, relating to this? Because if you are just applying the laws as they're written, it would seem that there wouldn't be much uh, room for confusion for the players and coaches to have this much uh, kind of fight back and feedback uh, through the media recently. Reality is this. When we speak to players and coaches in, in, in the comforts of a, a hotel in, in January, what we show them, I think, makes complete sense and they, they absorb it and take it in and understand and agree. When it manifests itself on a field in, in March and April, it, it's a different, um, a different feeling. And, and so... so the players understood and the players agreed amongst themselves that certain challenges that we saw and they all gasped and they all didn't take a breath when we showed such challenges, um, they understand that. But when they're down on that field and they, they're at work and they're focused on the game and they're doing what they think is the right thing to do, sometimes that gets a bit um, uh, lost. 
uh, in, in, in their mindset. Uh, and I think that, um, again, if we took them collectively into a room now and shown the videos, again, I think the same reaction would be from them, Kirk, and that is, yeah, we get it, we understand it. When it's applied in, 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 in action, it becomes slightly uh, more hard to accept and slightly more hard to absorb. But again, I'll go back to say that um, if, if um, uh, players continue uh, making such challenges, um, referees will continue making such decisions. And I do think that given time, um, it will be modified. And I wonder also your thoughts on um, the MLS Disciplinary Committee um, administering further punishment um, to some of these calls that you know maybe were giving yellow cards during a game um, and then are changed to red cards after the fact. Well, uh, the strap line for you is my job is to put the disciplinary committee out of, out, out of work. Um, I, want, I want my referees to get every decision right so that if we don't have the disciplinary committee meeting on a Monday or Tuesday, uh, which is quite separately to, um, to the referees. Um, and that is something that um, has been my mantra for the last two or three years and will continue to be so. And uh, the less the DC do, the more my referees pick up or uh, the more the players modify behaviour on the field of play. And so we go hand in hand. But of course, we both know that you know referees won't pick up everything. The TV cameras don't lie and the angles uh, don't lie. And of course, there's no hiding place now for players who um, transgress and the discipline committee um, will pick, will pick the, um, the bits that fall through the cracks. You've spoken about the players needing to adjust. But what about the referees and, and how long you expect it to take for them to get used to it? And, and I'll just reference the weekend. I mean, for fans watching when they see certain players get sent off on the Saturday and then, and then Breck Shea stay in the game on the Sunday, everyone's left scratching their heads. You know, obviously these decisions impact the games. I mean, Shea goes and scores yeah. goals. So uh, how... I mean, how many weeks realistically do you think it's going to take until referees get used to what is a red and what's not? And, and a quick follow-up after that is, you know, is there not concern that they start erring on the side of more reds with borderline stuff because they, they don't want to get shown up on the Wednesday by the disciplinary community? And it, like you say, future assignments are in jeopardy, the paycheck, their paychecks are in jeopardy if they don't get it right. Is there not a concern that that, that will lead to you know, if they're not sure, whereas perhaps they might before not call something, but now you're going to see more straight reds because of that. Yeah, I mean, two, two good questions. By the way, it's a great goal from Brett Shea. I was at the game. <laughs> and I don't think anybody will stop that one. But you, you, you're quite right. And that's the consistency in that manner. And, and I can't be prescriptive and say it'll be three weeks, it'll be two weeks. Because you, 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 you know that um, this is a subjective game. What we are looking for is to bring those margins of error together so that we don't see um, uh, uh, big, wide gaps. Um, big, in terms of Brett Shea, uh, again, subjective uh, viewpoint. Kelly, the referee, had a great view of it and, and, and thought it was a yellow card. In hindsight, it may well have been a red card. But going back to the, you know, your, your question, I think over the past four weeks, we've had 13 different referees send off players. And that, for me, shows that the group itself is beginning to understand and realise it's not just one or two referees going in there like a sheriff. It's 13 referees across the group um, recognising challenges and dealing with them as we, uh, as we ask them to deal with. Um, whether or not um, the referees will modify their behaviour, well, I, I think that the referees will continue uh, doing what they feel is correct um, uh, with the players having to 
money by themselves. In terms of um, when you said about um, erring on, on the side of red cards, don't, don't forget that you know we look at all these red cards, and I, I've personally looked at all 16 red cards this season, 13 of which have been my English turn is nailed on, 13 of which I think everybody would give a red card to, and it's 3-1, three, 3 where you, you, you debate. I accept that, that's part of the game. But also, if those red cards are issued and they're wrongly issued, then that referee suffers as a consequence of that. They're, if they're erring on the side of a red card just because they think that they may well be downgraded, that's not actually true. Um, what they're doing is making sure that the decision they, did, they give is the correct decision. Because if it's the wrong decision, but either not giving it or giving it, then they will suffer for it. So it is pressure on the referees, um, but that's the life of a referee. That's the life of the coach. It's results driven. That's the life of the player. It's goal scored or save, or, or save made. Referees are just the same, and uh, they want to get that decision correct on the day. Peter, you talk about how the referees and pro get in a meeting with the team early in the season during the season. Is any plan to do it during the season again, like refreshing concepts and all that? Um, the answer to that is yes. And, and that's something that has been that has been missing. What we what we've been doing in previous seasons is to meet up with the clubs pre-season, and then part of my management team or one of my management team would then go into the club during the season to talk in general terms. We've seen uh, and we've felt that we're missing an element here, and that should be taking our uh, taking an active referee as well as a um, uh, support manager into the club. Um, maybe just to um, um, uh, share some training with them, or, or share some obviously some time with the clubs to to reiterate messages, to understand um, the, the feedback we're getting from clubs, and to um, um, just take a um, you know check mark to say where we're going. And so what we will be seeing this season, uh, post July the fourth, is a um, a whistle stop tour of our clubs. With, with an active referee just to understand where we are and to give them the opportunity then being the clubs and the players the opportunity outside of that pressure situation of match days of meeting up with somebody from the refereeing side where we can exchange of ideas and initiatives and exchange views as well and I think that would be very healthy is, uh, The disciplinary committee is giving out sanctions during the week that sends the message that the referee on the field didn't take the proper Position. Is that affecting the referee's uh, performance evaluation and how? The answer is yes, it does affect the referee. Nobody wants to be told something that they have missed. Nobody wants to be told that they haven't done the job correctly in, in, any, in any profession. And refereeing um, is, is the same as any profession, really. You know, we want to do the best job we can. And I, I, I'll, I'll uh, uh, allude to the uh, remark I made earlier. My role really is to put the discipline committee out of, out of function. That will never happen, I don't think. Um, but that's that's the uh, that's the driver. And when we when we speak collectively every two weeks um, with the group of officials, yes, we do talk about some of the um, uh, decisions made by the discipline committee. We don't necessarily agree with all those decisions by the discipline committee, by the way. But that's down to them. But we do talk about them, and we do um, understand um, uh, the majority of cases. Where, where their decisions come from, and, and there's a few that we don't necessarily agree with. Peter, I spoke to one player this week who said that given the way that things are being called this season, uh, and especially in terms of uh, tackles that uh, could be seen as 
is endangering the safety of your opponent. He, his quote was, uh, I think guys are starting to milk it now a little bit. Uh, when you talk to the players in preseason, was simulation part of this discussion? Obviously, Real Madrid's Marcelo is in hot water after his antics this week. But is there any concern that uh, if uh, such fouls are being called uh, more stringently that some players might try and play it up a little bit? No, these questions are very good, by the way, um, and, and they're, they're, they're cutting. So let me, let me come straight to the point here. Players have a responsibility themselves, and we did speak to players about this in pre-season and in previous pre-season. They do have a responsibility themselves, and it is not the referee's um, uh, mandate to see if the player um, is, is play acting or not. Um, and sometimes you know, players do. And embellish, uh, and, and we can all see that. Does, is that embellishment um, being increased because of the, uh, the, uh, the way the referees are, are refereeing the game? I don't think so. I haven't detected that, and, and, I, and I'd like to think uh, that won't happen. I'm not naive enough to realise that sometimes certain players do um, use that as a tactic. Um, but so are referees, and our referees are um, every Friday. Um, briefed on the teams they're going to referee, the players they're going to referee. They understand the environment they're going in. They understand the various players. And so they should have some some uh, back knowledge of, of, of the games they're going in. In terms of um, players and, and your, your pointed question about do they milk it, um, I don't think they do. Um, but we are uh, cognizant of the fact that that could uh, be a consequence, could form a consequence of of where we are today and something we need to be um, quite mindful of. Who to be a referee? Get him off, get him off. What a whistle and a little dried up bee. It's no protection for the things they throw. Toilet rolls and puddles every time I blow. So Peter Walton from Pro there. I know it was a, a long piece that we put in. I just felt it was important, as I said, that fans get to hear the, the referee's side of it and, and exactly what they're looking for this year. So some of the key points from that, he's talking about how this isn't new, that this has been the mandate for the referees since 2012, he was, he was saying, and that it's just that the referees are now officiating it in a better way and putting it into practice in a better way. He also acknowledged the fact that other leagues around the world aren't sending off for some of the tackles that MLS are. He actually feels that MLS referees are following the letter of the law and that referees in leagues elsewhere aren't. And perhaps one of the, one of the biggest things that he said there was MLS and the, the pro referees, they're not going to change. And he feels it's up to the players to adapt and to change. Yet in saying that, you look at the weekend's games, and we talked about it in the podcast last week, we had heard that the referees were going to rein it back a little bit, and you did definitely see it in, in the games over the weekend. There were a number of tackles that, that went relatively unpunished during the game. There was Morrow's tackle on Gershon Kofi, Acosta's tackle in the Dallas-San Jose game, and of course the, the tackle that everyone's talking about. Nigel de Jong's, yeah. Nigel de Jong with a horrible tackle on Darlington Nagby, a tackle which he said afterwards was 50-50. Yeah, and then, and then don't forget the one in WFC2 where there was that uh, tackle. And the referee, we should talk about that, the referee in WFC2 game, 
didn't send anybody off, even though there was many instances and many shouts for penalties as well. So maybe the trickle-down effect happened all the way down to USL. Yeah, it was funny. Like We're talking about Will Simor's tackle in the, the second half on one of the Sacramento players. He went in hard. And we were sitting in amongst the, the Whitecaps players. And we won't say which players we were talking to, but there was two players we were joking with about what the effects of that tackle would have been if it was an M- in MLS. Yeah, they said that like basically Disco would have... Uh... Would have been a maybe a two game suspension, a major fine, and other sanctions against the player. So it was it was very they were very funny. They were very tongue in cheek there. So we'll, we'll see what happens with the referees going forward. And it doesn't sound like they're they're going to change, but it, it is killing the game. Peter Walton doesn't feel it is, but it's hard. To, to, to say that's not. Yeah, I, I think what you, what what they're doing is they're trying to get this sh- get get ho- hopefully get through this short term effect of it killing the game and maybe it opening up. But in the past, um, if you look at other sports, when other our sports have been trying, they try to uh, really clamp down on fouls and wherever the fouls are. It do- it doesn't honestly. It doesn't. The players still seem to be do it. Um, all this stuff is reactionary when you're training from a young age at like seven or eight. And when you start tackling, maybe I think age 10, they start tackling like that where they go to ground more. It's embedded in them. So there's no way you can get that out. And and I think and that's maybe a question we should ask uh, residency uh, coaches as well. Are you going to start um, co- coaching players differently and try to get them to stay on their feet instead of going to ground as much as they do? And one of the other things Walton said was the players were all briefed before the season started. They didn't seem to have any problems with it. He's going to speak to a selection of the players as well over the course of the season. The feedback from a lot of the players on social media, as we talked about last week, I mean, I think that's probably what spurred Pro into doing these calls. Ah, We'll see what happens. We don't want to be talking about referees every week. They don't want us to be talking about them. It's just how it is at the moment, but let's just hope that the Whitecaps can at least go a few more games now without any suspensions coming up. And and just one last thing I just wanted to say on that is I'd rather have the referees not do the red cards. I'd rather have disciplinary afterwards. If you do that and not show as many red cards during the game, it lets the game flow a little bit better and at least you know that uh, it's going to be a, an even game and back and forth and stuff like that. Nobody's going to clamp down if they're reduced to 10 men. Well, I think this week that's exactly what's going to happen. I think we're going to see quite a lot of subsequent red cards handed out by Disco, but I think we can all agree anyway that Disco sucks. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for this episode of the podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Just before we go, Steve, let everyone know where they can find you online. You can find me on Twitter at WhitecapsBeat. And I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada. Read all our stuff away from the numbers, AFTN.ca. I'm also the Whitecaps beat reporter for MLSsoccer.com and I'm also writing some stuff on the Whitecaps and West Coast and Canadian teams for USLsoccer.com so check out my stuff there as well. So until next time, all that's left to say is let's hope the Whitecaps can find their goal-scoring boots down in Utah and as always, mon the Caps! Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.